Well, welcome to First Church Live. So glad you guys are joining us. My name is Chad, if you're new, and we are one church that meets in more than one location. For the past two weeks, we've been back here at North Garnett. Great to see you guys again. But also, we have families that are meeting all throughout Northeast Oklahoma and beyond in other states and other countries. So if you guys are here in person, if you would, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online campus as well. And if you've been around our church for a while, you know we have a great staff. I love our ministerial staff here and our admin staff. But besides working hard, and we do work hard, we also know how to have fun. So in honor of our Curveball series, we decided one day this week, a few of the staff members, to have a dizzy bat race. Do you guys know what that is, where you spin around and see if you can run in a straight line? Well, we decided to give it a shot. Take a look at what happened. I want you to notice a couple of things. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's fine. Yeah. I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, we use genuine Louisville Slugger bats made in Louisville, Kentucky. I had to point that out, by the way. But then the other thing I wanted to mention was that even though I did participate in the Dizzy Bat race, if you notice there were no clips of me falling over, when you're the lead minister, you get veto power. So anyway, I wasn't embarrassed at all in that video, so that's, that's awesome. But it is our Curveball Series, and we want to celebrate with you guys as well. So we have, we have a special treat for you. When you leave today... Everybody here on campus will get a free box of Cracker Jacks, and so you can pick one up as you leave. We are asking that you don't open them till you leave the building in case people have peanut allergies, but take one with you. You can snack on the way home as we celebrate our Curveball series. And we're in this series right now because curveballs don't just happen in baseball. They also happen in life. And we've been looking at different Old Testament people We've experienced some curveball in life, and we're seeing how they responded to it and how God continued to work in their lives and use them in the midst of it. And we're going to wrap up this series next Sunday. It's also Grad Sunday. You're not going to want to miss the conclusion of this series as we look at the life of David, one of the most famous men in the Old Testament. But today, before we get there, we're going to look at another curveball situation, another guy in the Old Testament, and he's not near as well known to us probably as David, but the story of his life is just as powerful. And his name, Jacob. Now, Jacob is an interesting guy because most of the time when we've looked at these examples of guys or gals who experienced some curveball, they were people who, you know, they experienced this curveball, they struggled through it, they turned their lives over to God or turned their situation over to God, and God helped them through it, gave them strength, and they ended up seeing how God used that situation for his good. 
Jacob's a little different story because Jacob experienced curveball after curveball after curveball after curveball, and yet it took him a long time to turn those situations over to God. It took him a long time to turn his life over to God. You know why? Because Jacob wanted to do life his way. And we see this happen over and over again in the early part of his life. Now, here's the thing. Jacob grew up knowing God. His granddaddy, his grandpa was Abraham. I mean, like the Abraham, the guy who's like the founder of the Jewish faith, you know, race, whatever. The Abraham, Father Abraham, that guy, the guy who was called in Scripture the friend of God. I mean, Abraham was his granddaddy. And then his dad was Isaac, another patriarch of the faith. Isaac, that son of promise that was given to Abraham and Sarah, that's who his dad and grandpa were. And yet, when we come to Jacob, even though Jacob knows who God is intellectually, Jacob doesn't exactly follow God. He doesn't have the relationship with God like he should. And this reminds me of a key truth that I think is extremely important, and it's this. Godliness doesn't automatically transfer from one generation to the next. See, that's why we put such an emphasis here at First Church on our next-gen ministry, our student ministry, our early childhood ministry, our first kids ministry, because we believe that every generation has to make the choice for themselves whether or not they're going to follow God. And so we want to teach them intentionally who God is so that they can enter into a saving, transformational relationship with Him. Because godliness doesn't automatically transfer to the next generation. And that also means, guys, you can't ride your parents' or your grandparents' spiritual coattails. Just because your parents were faithful to God. Just because your grandparents were faithful to God, it's not enough for you. You've got to make that choice. You've got to make that decision. And for a long time, Jacob didn't make that decision. Again, he knew who God was, but he didn't have the relationship with God that he needed. So every time he experienced a problem, every time he had some issue in life, he just tried to figure out himself. His attitude was, I got this. And let me ask you, have you ever had that attitude? I have during different seasons of my life. Well, I've experienced some problem or some issue in life, and I've tried to pretend like I've got it all under control, and I've said to myself, I got this. I can handle this. I'm good. I'm good on my own. I don't need anybody else's help. I don't need anybody else's experience or advice or wisdom. I don't need somebody who's more spiritually mature than me to help me out. I don't need to turn this over to God. I got this. And all I've done in those situations is lied to myself, lied to others, and I haven't fooled God at all. And that was Jacob. And what I have experienced personally in looking at the lives of others and looking at my own life is this. Many people try to fix their problems on their own until they can't. And then when they get to the point where they finally realize they can't, this is what happens. By that point, their lives are already spiraling out of control. And when we get to Genesis chapter 32, Jacob's life is spiraling out of control. He's got nowhere else to turn. He's got no more answers. He can't come up with a new plan. His life is out of control. And he's panicked and he's desperate. And we're going to look at Genesis 32 today eventually. And I just want to let you know, I have never in my life that I can remember, I've never preached or publicly taught on Genesis 32. It's kind of a weird text. But we're going to get there and I'm going to preach on it today. But before we do and we see this situation where Jacob is desperate, I think we need to understand how he got to that point. So let's do a drive-by of his life. Let's look at some context, and let's see how Jacob got to this point. One thing you need to know about Jacob is Jacob struggled with insecurity his entire life. And because he struggled with insecurity, Jacob chased 
Go on to the next slide. Jacob chased one desire after the next, trying to fill the emptiness he felt deep within himself. He chased one desire after the next, hoping that something in life would fill that void he had deep within his soul. Something in life would fill that emptiness that he experienced deep within his heart. See, Jacob was a twin. He had an older brother, an older twin brother named Esau. And Esau was born just minutes before Jacob because, of course, they're twins. But what this meant was Esau was then the older brother of the family. And in this day and age, being the older brother came with a lot of extra stuff. So you were given the family birthright. And what that meant was as the eldest son, as the one who was given the family birthright, you got to inherit the large majority of your father's estate, like two-thirds of the father's estate. And then the other third was divided up among the other sons. But not only that, the oldest son, the eldest son who got the birthright was considered the next patriarch of the family. So you became the next leader of the family, the spiritual leader, the social leader of the family. And that's Esau. Esau, because he was born minutes before Jacob, got the family birthright, got to be the oldest son and have all that responsibility that came along with it. And this bothered Jacob his entire life. One, because he was just minutes away from having all this, but also because Esau really didn't appreciate his birthright. He didn't seem to care that much about it. And Jacob thought, if I had the birthright, I would treat that responsibility differently. I would take it more serious than Esau. And so Jacob resented the fact that he never had that birthright. And he thought to himself, if only I could have the birthright, if only I could have the status of the firstborn, then I would be fulfilled. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy and content. And so you know what Jacob does? He comes up with a scheme to try to steal the birthright away from Esau. See, Esau and Jacob were very different. They were different in their looks. They were different in their personalities. They were different in their interests. They were also, I think, different in their intellectual ability as well. Jacob was more shrewd than Esau. Jacob was a little bit, you might want to say smarter than Esau, and you're going to see why here in just a second. There's this description that we find in the book of Genesis of Jacob, Jacob and Esau. And it says, as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac, now this is their daddy, this is their father. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah, their mom, Rebekah loved Jacob. So Esau is this big, muscular, hairy guy, we find out. The Bible says that about him, who loved to be outdoors. Now, there's nothing wrong with being outdoors. Because you're an outdoorsman doesn't mean that you're less intelligent. Don't misunderstand me. I'll explain why I think Esau maybe wasn't as smart as Jacob here in just a second. But Esau was this outdoorsy, big old, strong dude. He was a man's man who liked to hunt and fish and all that good stuff. Jacob, on the other hand, not so much. He liked to spend time at home. He liked to spend time cooking and doing the different jobs around the house. That's why the message paraphrase says this about this last verse here. It paraphrases it like this. Isaac loved Esau because he was strong and mighty, but Jacob was a mama's boy. Well, actually, the message doesn't say that, but it should. That should be the paraphrase, okay? That should be what it says because that's kind of who Jacob was. But Jacob was cunning. He was kind of shrewd. 
And so this is what he does. He knows that Esau will go out for an entire day and do hunting. And when he would come back in from a day's work, Esau was always starved, was always hungry, famished. And so one day when Esau was out an extended period of time, Jacob's fixing food. He's cooking. And he fixes Esau's favorite dish, this red stew that Esau loved. And so Esau comes back to the house and he smells this stew that Jacob is fixing. And look at what happens. If we read on, it says, he, Esau, said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And so Jacob says, okay, you can have some of the stew, but there's a condition. Look what the condition is. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Now, I'm sure Esau was hungry. I don't doubt that at all. But this is a no-brainer. You're not going to sell your birthright. You're not going to give up two-thirds of your father's estate and give up your status as the firstborn for a bowl of stew. That's crazy. That would be stupid, right? This is why I'm questioning Esau's intellectual ability because look at what happens next here. Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? He's willing to give up everything. For a bowl of stew. How crazy is that? We may say that's pretty dumb. But that's what Esau does. And so Jacob gets the birthright. And now he has the birthright. He has the inheritance. He has the status of the firstborn. And we would think that this would now satisfy him, but it doesn't. Jacob still feels very empty on the inside. He still doesn't have his father's approval. His father doesn't like the fact that this happened. And Esau's ticked at him now because he tricked him. So Jacob still isn't fulfilled, and he says, well, maybe if I can finally get my father's blessing, then I will be satisfied. And so when his father is old, kind of on his deathbed, his father Isaac is blind, can't see very well, and his father wants to bless Esau because Esau is his favorite son, Jacob decides to trick his dad. And Jacob dresses up like Esau. He even puts like animal hair on his arms so that if his dad, who's blind, reaches out and touches his arms, he's going to think it's the hairy arms of Esau. I mean, Jacob disguises himself. He puts like the smell of animal and stuff all over him so that he smells like Esau. And then when he walks in to see his dad, he tries to talk in a deeper voice and act like he's Esau. And Isaac, their daddy, is fooled, and he gives the blessing he wanted to give to Esau to Jacob instead. And when Esau finds out about this, Esau is ticked. He's hot. So much so, big old muscular Esau wants to take Jacob out. He wants to kill him. And here's the thing. In a fight, Jacob's not going to be able to stand a chance against his big brother Esau. So you know what Jacob does? Instead of apologizing, instead of trying to make amends, instead of turning the whole situation over to God, you know what Jacob does? He runs. He flees because he's scared for his life. And so he runs as far away from his family's estate that he possibly can, and he runs, and he runs, and he runs, and he gets to be nightfall, and it's dark, and he decides to rest on the side of the road because he's exhausted, he's tired, he's worn out, and he's all alone. He's got nothing right now. And so he comes to this place, and look at what happens. Read with me, but in Genesis 20, verse 11, it says, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because... The sun had set. Taking one of the stones there along the side of the road, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. So just imagine this. Jacob, who lived a pretty good life up until this point in his parents' household, now is all alone 
exhausted with nothing whatsoever besides a rock, a stone he finds on the side of the road that he uses as a pillow. Not exactly the life that Jacob probably thought he was going to live. Not the life he probably wanted to live. I don't know if you've seen these commercials or not, but commercials for my pillow. You know, I've thought about buying one because look at what the box says. Guaranteed the most comfortable pillow you'll ever own. And if you've seen these commercials, you know that they say you will sleep longer and have better sleep if you have one of these pillows. I don't know if that's true because I don't have one, but I've been tempted to buy one because I would love to sleep better than what I do right now. Can I get an amen? Anybody else agree with that? Okay, if you have one of these pillows, let me know if it works or not. But here's the thing. I bet you Jacob didn't sleep very well on this. Not just because it was uncomfortable, but also because his brother is pursuing him. He's probably sleeping with one eye open, but I think he's not sleeping well because of another reason. Jacob is missing something in his life. He knows something isn't right. He feels empty on the inside. So that night while he's sleeping on a stone pillow, God appears to him. God appears to him in a vision, in a dream. And God lets Jacob know that he's with him. And he gives him this vision of this stairway to heaven, which you can read about later. It's a really cool vision, really cool dream. But in that moment, God lets Jacob know, I haven't forsaken you, even though you've been running from me. I'm still with you. I want to protect you. I want to lead. I want to guide you. And so Jacob wakes up the next morning after having this incredible, incredible moment with God. And he's so wild and amazed by what he has just seen that he takes this stone that was his pillow and he puts it aside and turns it into an altar. And he names this place, this unknown place, Bethel. And the name Bethel literally means the house of God because he encountered God in this place. I want you to notice he calls just where this rock was, the house of God. There was no temple there. There was no tabernacle there. There was no church building there. Jacob realized that God is present wherever he wants to be present. And he calls this place the house of God. And we would think that this would be a turning point in Jacob's life. That from now on, okay, I'm going to follow God. God, I'm going to do it your way. I've hit rock bottom, literally. So I'm going to follow you. Not exactly. Jacob now brings God along with him, but he still doesn't follow God. Jacob still wants to call the shots. Jacob still wants to be in charge. And so what Jacob does is he flees now to the estate of his uncle, a guy named Laban. And he goes to his uncle Laban, who he's never met before, and he says, hey, I'm part of your family. Can I live here? Can I work for you? And Laban says yes. And so Jacob tries to win Laban's approval. Laban kind of becomes a surrogate father for Jacob. And so he tries to win Laban's approval, but that doesn't exactly work out either. And Jacob still feels very empty. Jacob ends up falling in love with one of Laban's daughters, a girl named Rachel. He's smitten by Rachel. Rachel is beautiful. She's pretty. He's smitten by her. He is all about her. He wants to marry her. So he goes to Laban. He says, hey, can I marry your daughter, Rachel? And Laban's like, yeah, sure, you can marry her. Work for me seven years. So he says, okay, she's worth it. She's worth seven years of work. Okay, I will do that. And so Jacob works for Laban for seven years, and it comes time for the wedding, and they have this big wedding ceremony. But Laban pulls one over on Jacob. Laban disguises his older daughter, Leah, who's not married. And by the way, the Bible says that she wasn't the best to look at. <laughs> so there was no man who wanted to marry her. 
And so Laban disguises her, puts a heavy veil over her so that Jacob can't see who she is. And Jacob marries Leah, the older sister of Rachel, instead. And he even has the honeymoon night and doesn't even realize it's Leah. Now, I don't know how that worked out. I wasn't there, so I don't know how exactly that happened. I don't know if it was like really dark or there was a lot of alcohol involved. I don't know. I don't know how it happened exactly, but... The Bible just says the next morning Jacob wakes up and there was Leah. I mean, (laughs) surprise, not the woman you thought you were with, okay? That's weird, but that's what happened. So Jacob's ticked. He goes back to Laban. He says, hey, I want to marry Rachel, not Leah. And Laban says, hey, we have this tradition that the oldest daughter has to get married first. So before you can marry Rachel, you've got to marry her. Kind of a two-for-one deal here. And Jacob's like, "Uh, do I still get to marry Rachel? Well, if you work for me seven more years, yeah, I'll give you Rachel too. And Jacob does it. So he ends up getting married to Rachel. He marries the woman of his dreams. He's got Leah too. He's got two wives now that are sisters. That's a recipe for disaster. But still, it happened. And he has a whole bunch of kids. And so now Jacob finds love. Jacob has kids. He has a big family. And he thinks this is going to satisfy him. But it doesn't. And so Jacob moves on to something else hoping that something else will satisfy him. He moves on and he tries to get his surrogate father, Laban, his uncle's wealth. He tries to trick Laban out of his best livestock, and he ends up succeeding, and Jacob ends up possessing all of Laban's best livestock and becomes extremely, extremely wealthy. And here's the thing, that doesn't satisfy him either, and eventually he gets caught doing it. And in Genesis 31 verse 1 It says that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. They're mad at Jacob for stealing from them. So Jacob finds out that Laban's sons and Laban are all mad at him. So you know what Jacob decides to do? What he's done before? Run. Let me get away. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't try to make amends. He doesn't turn the situation over to God. He runs. And then we go on to read in Genesis 31. And moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the, the, I'm sorry, the Aramean, sorry, by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had. And crossing the river, he headed for the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob flees. He gets away from Laban. And he is scared to death because he's now messed with Laban's finances, his family, and he also messes with his faith. What we didn't read was before they left and they skipped town, one of Jacob's wives, Rachel, she takes the household gods of Laban. You see, Laban was not a worshiper of the one true God like Jacob was supposed to be. Laban worshiped false gods. And apparently he allowed his wives and his children to continue to worship false gods as well and his servants See, God isn't at the center of Jacob's life. Jacob believes in the one true God, but God isn't at the center of his life, so he still tolerates these other false gods that are around him. And so Rachel takes her father's household gods with them. And so Laban is mad, and he pursues Jacob. He catches up with Jacob, and when he does, he's ready, he's ready to have some words with Jacob, but God protects him in this moment, God protects Jacob, and Laban and him, they come to a peace agreement, and Laban basically says, okay, for the sake of my family, 
I will not hurt you or any of your servants or any of your family, but I'm going to build a border here. I'm going to put up some stones as a boundary, and you're not to cross this boundary. If you cross this boundary, you're going to be in trouble. But I won't cross it, and you don't cross it, and we'll be fine, and we'll just live apart. And so that's what Jacob agrees to do. So Laban is now taken care of. Laban goes back to his estate. Jacob agrees not to cross that boundary. And then God appears to Jacob again, and God says, okay, I want you to go back now to Esau, your brother, who you ticked off, and I want you to reconcile with him. And Jacob's like, God, now, I, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, Jay, uh, Esau at one point wanted to kill me. I don't know about that. And God says, I want you to go reconcile with Esau. And so Jacob, he does it, but he's nervous, and so he sends some servants ahead of him to see how Esau was doing, to see if Esau was still mad at him or not. And the servants go and check with Esau, and they come back, and look at what the Scripture says in Genesis 32. It says, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In other words, yeah, he's excited you're coming. He's not going to wait for you to get here. He's going to come meet you, and he's bringing an army of 400 men with him. And the Bible says that Jacob, Jacob had great fear and was in distress. Because remember what he did to Esau, and now Esau's coming at him with 400 men. And so, again, instead of turning the situation over to God, Jacob comes up with his own plan. And this is what he does. This is how selfish Jacob is. He divides up his family and his servants. And he says, half of you go over here and half of you go over there, and I'm going to use one of you as a decoy. I'm going to stay away from both of you, and I'm going to see which uh, group Esau attacks first, and then I'm going to run to the other group, and we're going to escape, and we're going to get out of here. That's his plan. And so he divides up his family and servants and people that are with him to two groups, he goes off to be by himself as he waits for Esau to come to see how angry Esau really is. And while he's off by himself, desperate and alone again, he cries out to God. And look at what he says. He cries out to God in prayer. He says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. God hears Jacob's cry of desperation. And so God appears to him in Genesis 32. And when God appears to Jacob, he's desperate, he's alone, the walls are closing in on him. Laban's on one side, Esau's on the other. And God appears to Jacob in the form of of a man in human-like form. I'm not sure how God did this. The Bible doesn't explain how this happened. But in the middle of the night, when Jacob's all alone, God enters into Jacob's tent, basically, as a man, the form of a man. And God allows Jacob to wrestle with him, to fight with him. And this is what happens. Let's read. So Jacob was left alone. And a man, this is God, some manifestation of God in human-like form, wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? And Jacob, Jacob he answered, then the man said, 
Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? In other words, you know who I am. Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So this is kind of an odd, weird encounter with God, but it's pretty powerful. And let me explain why by pointing out a couple of things. The first thing that I want you to notice is that God appears to Jacob when he's all alone. Because I think Jacob, like many of us, didn't do alone all that well. See, Jacob's life was surrounded by noise. He always had people around him, always had family, always had work to be done, always had stuff going on. There was always a task to be carried out, always someone who needed him. Jacob's life was surrounded by noise. And this is the first time that Jacob has been all alone, at least the only example we have in the Scripture that he's been all alone since Bethel. And it's as if God seizes this opportunity because God knows that Jacob needs to carry out some long overdue business with him. And like many of us, we don't do alone very well, do we? I read a study just the other day that said we check our cell phones, not when the phone rings or when we have a text message or email or something like that. We just check it for the sake of checking it 96 times a day on average, 96 times a day. That's like once every 10 minutes we check our phones. We don't do alone very well. We don't like being alone because when we're alone, then we have time to think and examine ourselves, and alone can be very awkward. And sometimes what we need is that alone time with God to realize the God who is right in front of us who wants to change the trajectory of our lives. Jacob needed this alone time with God to do some business with him. And let me ask you, is it time for you to take care of some long overdue business with God? Do you need to sit still, be quiet, and just listen to God? Is there something that God wants you to do, something God's trying to tell you, something God's trying to motivate you to do, but you're so busy that you're not listening? Because here's the thing, we will never, we'll never understand God's purpose for our lives until we step away from the noise and pay attention to him. We put down our cell phones, we turn off the TV, when we walk away from our busyness, when we walk away from our hobbies, when we walk away from all the stuff that's competing for our attention, we will never be able to fully understand God's purpose for our lives until we step away from all the noise and actually pay attention to the God who's been right in front of us all along. God appeared to Jacob when he was all alone, but something else I want you to notice, God allows Jacob to wrestle with him. See, this is God in some human-like form. God could have taken Jacob out like that, but he allows Jacob to wrestle with him. I mean, did you notice what happened? God allows Jacob to wrestle with him, but eventually God kind of has enough, and then he touches Jacob's hip, and he dislocates his hip. I mean, the Hebrew says that all God had to do was tap it. That's what that word touched me. He just tapped his hip, and he dislocated it. It was that simple. God could have easily won this fight, but he allowed for Jacob to wrestle with him. Why? Why did God weaken himself? Why did God lower himself? Because God will allow us to wrestle with him if it means that we'll eventually reach out to him. Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? Lowered himself, weakened himself, became a servant for our sake so that we could then reach out and cling to God. And that's exactly what Jacob does in this moment. 
He realizes who this man is who is wrestling with him, and he clings to God, and he won't let go of him. He refuses to let go of him until God blesses him because Jacob finally realizes, I'm weak, I'm alone, I've got nothing, I've got nowhere to turn, and right now what I need more than anything else is God's blessing on my life. Nothing else matters. And sometimes we need to be humbled for us to see our real need for God. So God blesses Jacob, and Jacob goes to meet Esau the next day, and everything is okay. Esau's not mad at Jacob. He's just happy to see him. They reunite. They reconcile. Everything is good. God's hand is on that whole situation. And we might think that after Jacob escapes this encounter with Esau, that he might go, boy, I made it through that one. And then he goes on and lives how he's been living for himself. But he doesn't. No, he's been changed. And God tells Jacob, I want you to go back to Bethel, that place where he first had that encounter. And Jacob obeys. We read on in the scripture. It says, so Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. In other words, we're not worshiping false gods anymore. We're not playing around anymore. A new day has just started. And purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. And so Jacob says, we're going to go back to Bethel. We're going to have a fresh start. We're going to do life God's way. And they get rid of their idols. They get rid of their false gods. And God changes the entire trajectory of Jacob's life. It signals a new day for him. And what ends up happening is God goes, takes Jacob back to Bethel, the place where he once hit rock bottom, the place where he was empty and alone and had nothing, and he turns what once was a pillow of stone into a pillar of strength as God does life with Jacob from here on out. And here's the thing, I don't know what you're experiencing right now. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what is your pillow of stone right now. But the God who turned Jacob's life around and gave him a fresh start is the same God who can give you a fresh start today, who can turn your rock-bottom situation into life again who can take your emptiness and your loneliness and your desperation and turn it into salvation and deliverance. The God of Bethel is the God who is here right in front of you today. And just as he dwelt, just as he dwelt with Jacob in the midst of his loneliness, in the midst of his desperation, he can dwell with you. The question is, are you willing to let go of whatever it is that you're clinging to right now in order to turn around and cling to him? Because here's the thing, God dwells in the hearts of the broken who cling to him. My in-laws came and visited my family a few weeks ago, and they gave Alex an early birthday gift. His birthday is still like a month and a half away, but they gave him an early birthday gift. And this is what it was, if you take a look at this video. It's an electric scooter, which is really kind of cool, and he has a blast on it. He has a lot of fun riding it around. And I have to admit that I've also had a lot of fun riding around on it. Even though there's supposed to be a weight limit, I still get on it. Yeah, here's a video that Allison took of me riding on it. And so it's a lot of fun. I don't exactly fit on it, but I still enjoy doing it. But what the odd thing was, when my in-laws gave Alex this electric scooter, he had an old scooter, a little one that he used to ride on, 
that's really, you know, not much at all. And so what we decided to do was give this to Addie because she's three years younger than him. And thought, well, now Addie can have this scooter. And when we offered to give Addie this scooter, Alex lost it. He was all upset. Now, he had this electric motorized scooter, but he was all upset because this was his originally. And we said, listen, you've got a brand new scooter. And he was like, no, I want this one. So he put down his electric scooter and started going around on this one. So we looked at him and said, okay, fine. You can keep it if you want to keep it. We're going to take back your motorized one. <laughs> he said, no, no, I'll take it. Addie can have this one. And so then we gave it to her. But how often is this us in life? God says, I want to give you a brand new life, a much better life, a life that's far beyond what you have right now. But you've got to let go of this life. You've got to let go of the old. You've got to let go of the pillow of stone so that I can turn it into a pillar of strength. What do you need to let go of today? Because when you do, Bethel can become your life. You can have a life that God dwells in and blesses. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today, and I thank you for this time we've had to meet together in this place. May we be a people who don't run from you, but who run to you. And God, may you continue to work in our lives and change the trajectory of our lives so that we can experience a fresh start in your son, Jesus. It's through his name I pray, amen.